Under the HIPAA omnibus rule, the standard for assessing whether data breaches need to be reported has changed. In the past, incidents were evaluated using the so-called harm standard, which looked at whether a breach would cause financial, reputational, or other harm to an individual. But now under HIPAA omnibus, there is a more objective standard that involves assessing four factors to determine whether an incident is considered a reportable breach. I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee, Managing Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with Kate Borton, Principal of the Marblehead Group, a security consulting firm. Kate will explain the four factors that need to be considered when assessing breaches under the HIPAA Omnibus Breach Notification Rule. Hi, Kate. Hi, Marianne. Now, the first factor that the Department of Health and Human Services says should be considered in assessing breaches is, quote, the nature and extent of the protected health information involved, including types of identifiers and the likelihood of re-identification. How should organizations go about doing that assessment? Well, Marianne, if I could say first that um, in addition to what you said in your introduction, there is a presumption now that an incident is a breach unless you can pretty much demonstrate otherwise through performing a risk assessment. Uh, And in fact, these factors were in the interim final rule. They were just in the preamble, as was that assumption. So I think there hasn't been, in my opinion, a real substantive change. It's just been clarification and pushing these the intent from the preamble into the rule itself. So organizations that from the interim final rule read the preamble and they understood these factors and the examples, I don't think have had to change their process at all. So that said, this first factor, what kind of PHI? What was the nature of the PHI? Well, if a paper report or an electronic file that simply says, this is the community hospital and this is a list of our patients, might not be particularly damaging. If it's a general hospital, it could be anybody has been there for anything. So it doesn't give you a clue about the clinical uh, nature or when visits were made or anything like that. On the other hand, if the organization is a specialty, an OBGYN clinic or a fertility clinic or a cancer clinic or anything like that, just the fact that you're a patient at a facility like that is a giveaway about your clinical condition. The point about likelihood of re-identification is important for organizations who use limited data sets to pay attention to. In the interim final rule, there was an exception made for a limited data set. So that's a data set essentially with all the direct identifiers removed. So no name, address, medical record number, subscriber number, and so on. And there was an exception if there was a limited data set that did not include date of birth and zip code. That was not considered a breach. They have done away with that exception because of the language in this first factor. So if you have a limited data set and it doesn't have those direct identifiers and it also does not have dates of birth or uh, zip codes, then you might conclude, uh, at least in evaluating the first factor, there's a very low likelihood that the PHI was compromised. What do organizations need to consider when assessing the second factor, which is, quote, 
the unauthorized party who used the PHI or to whom the disclosure was made? This one, I think, is pretty common sense. If you have, let's say, a misdirected fax or in some other way there's been a disclosure to, let's say, a HIPAA-covered entity and they immediately recognize, oh, my gosh, this shouldn't have been sent here, and they call in their privacy officer, there's a greater chance that it's going to be handled appropriately, and this really touches on the fourth factor as well, as opposed to that misdirected fax that goes to the Boston Globe newspaper or your local uh, spa, a commercial business, or a person's home. I actually, a few years ago, received a fax, no cover letter, nothing, a single page from a physician's office uh, with a physician's name and a slew of PHI, including a prescription. Now, I'm not a covered entity. I'm not legally obligated to protect that information, so that's clearly a disclosure. So consider who actually was the unauthorized recipient. If it's another covered entity or even in some cases perhaps a business associate or perhaps a uh, a government agency that is subject to the Privacy Act and stringent security requirements and so on, in this particular factor, remember, you have to consider all of these factors together. You might say, well, this looks like a, a pretty low score here, low risk here. So depending on who actually received or uh, was the unauthorized recipient of the information. How about the third factor, which looks at whether PHI was actually acquired or viewed? What does that mean? Well, that's a good question, Marianne, and that's I always say to people, you really should read the preamble because if you just read the regulatory language and you try to guess at that, you might be way off track. So in the preamble, they explain this language and they give examples. So a classic example here is a laptop that someone loses. If it's stolen, I think you pretty much jump right to this was a breach. But if someone simply misplaces, now we would hope that in 2013 we're encrypting our laptops, but we aren't there. Unfortunately, we are not there yet. But let's say an employee or one of your physicians misplaces a laptop with PHI on it that's not encrypted and just can't find it. Gee, did somebody get that? Is somebody viewing it? Well, if the laptop shows up within a day or a couple of days and you actually have forensics tools or forensics experts who can look at that laptop and can say with certainty the files with protected health information were not touched, then you can say, this information was not actually acquired or viewed. So on this third factor, you you score very well there. Very unlikely that it's been a breach. Another example is mailing, let's say a health plan is mailing EOBs, explanations of benefits, and there's a software glitch. So the names of the subscribers are associated with some other subscriber's address. Let's say you send out a 1,000 of these, and the post office returns a 1,000 of them to you stamped undeliverable, and they're all sealed. You can say, phew, we dodged that bullet. If the post office returns 99 out of that, or 999 out of the 1,000, then 
you have to presume that whoever got that one opened it and the information was actually acquired and viewed. After all, I think everybody has had that experience of opening a piece of mail that comes to you, and only after you open it you realize, oh, this wasn't actually addressed to me. Oops, sorry. So that's another example. How should organizations assess the fourth factor, which is the extent to which the risk to PHI has been mitigated? This is uh, this kind of goes back to the second factor, who actually received the information? Who was that party that received the PHI without authorization, accidentally or for whatever reason? Uh, again, if it's a another covered entity, for example, they're subject to the same legal requirements as well as assuming they are compliant, they're going to have the same policies and so on about understanding what is PHI and how it has to be kept confidential. So if you discover immediately that that fax or email or however it's transmitted went to another covered entity and you contact their privacy or security officer very promptly and that privacy officer, for example, says, I did get that. I have cautioned everyone who touched that. This is protected health information and it may never pass your lips forever and I will shred this document immediately and I will send you a letter on my organization's letterhead stationery saying, we received this fax by mistake, we promptly shredded it, we do not believe there was any harm will come or any compromise of the information. That's the way you would mitigate the risk in this case. Now, I think you have to be very careful about that. I think in most cases, this fourth factor is not going to be very satisfying. There's not going to be much you can do once the horse is out of the barn. Uh, there is the, this, this uh, I think, rather exceptional situation where you can kind of pull that data back and make sure that uh, it's destroyed or returned and uh, that there hasn't been any potential compromise there. Finally, are the assessment steps you just covered the same for covered entities as well as business associates who are now directly liable under HIPAA? Well, business associates are liable for certain aspects of HIPAA. For example, they are directly liable for compliance with the security rule. Breach notification is slightly different. They definitely have responsibilities to report breaches up the chain of business associates back to the covered entity or entities who are actually the, it's their patients or their plan members who are the subject of the PHI that's been uh, potentially breached. But ultimately, the regulations say that it is the covered entity who is responsible for the notification of the individuals and of Health and Human Services. Now, in reality, if a business associate is the organization that actually screwed up and had the breach, it's very likely that the covered entity will say to the business associate, you're going to have to foot the bill for this. It's going to have to go out over your stationery, and you're going to take a big part of the hit uh, reputation-wise as well as for the expense of all the notification. So it comes back to who makes the risk assessment. I think it's important for each organization, the business associates, to understand these factors 
so that they have a, a first cut at, gee, does this look like it's going to rise to the level of a breach? I personally believe that ultimately the covered entity has the say. There are, it's, it's much more black and white in this final rule than in the interim final rule, in my opinion. There's much less gray, but there still are cases where there could be a disagreement that the business associate might conclude it's not a breach and the covered entity says, yep, we think it is. Now your lawyers may duke it out there, but I think the covered entity's position is probably going to weigh more heavily there. And so the covered entity will make the call. But overriding all of that, today, business associate contracts, even though they're not required by HIPAA to say this, typically say to the business associate, if you encounter any kind of a privacy or security incident, regardless of whether it rises to the level of a breach, you have to let us know right away. Come on you know, within a business day or five business days, something like that. Every contract differs a bit, but every contract I see has language like that in it. So it's going above the actual law that doesn't require notification as soon as possible, but within no later than 60 days. In reality, the contracts are saying you have to let us know right away. We want to be involved in making the risk assessment or the determination of whether there's been a breach. And so the covered entities and the business associates, that whole line of BAs, I think they're going to know much sooner rather than later whether there's been an event and up the chain uh, will make the decision about it. But they should understand what these factors are. They should have processes in place for, uh, for certainly uh, recognizing that an incident could be rising to the level of a violation, if not a breach, and be prepared to very promptly notify the next business associate up the chain or the covered entity, if it's the, uh, the covered entity. Thanks, Kate. I've been speaking to Kate Borton of the Marblehead Group. I'm Marianne Kolbesek-Begee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.